welcome to the 13th Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is Women in Science, ahead of the International Day of Women and Girls in Science 2021 on Thursday the 11th of February. I'm going to be chatting with Sue Nelson, filmmaker, radio and podcast producer, broadcaster, writer and multimedia expert, specialising in science, engineering and space. Sue studied physics at university before joining the BBC. As ever, we'll also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's associate editor, who's going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. A quick reminder that you can sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of the website. So that's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our new LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology. And you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the show, Sue Nelson. How are you doing, Sue? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. So without further ado, I'm going to dip straight into the questions. Please could you tell us a bit about your educational background and career to date? I went to a girls' grammar school, which was very high academic achieving school. But it was just the norm for me to be surrounded by other women, young women, who were all really competitive, (laughs) whether it was sport or singing or best results in in a maths class, it really pushed you to be your best. Although, you know, they're controversial now in a way in terms of being selective. And it's only looking back now that I realise that for um, the friends of mine who didn't get into grammar school and went to the local secondary school, how rejected they felt and how they felt as if their lives were over. And so now I have really mixed feelings about it because um, I know there are pluses. So when I went to school, out of 100 girls in the sixth form, 33 of them did A-level physics. So that's a third of the entire sixth form doing A-level physics. Now that would be unheard of today. So there are some huge advantages in that um, young girls, young women don't feel like a certain subject is not for them. I did science A-levels, maths, physics, chemistry, um, general studies, went to university to study physics, which is my favourite subject one of them anyway, and, and then joined the BBC as a sound engineer, or they call them a studio manager, but other independent companies would call them a sound engineer. And that means you're the person who operates the mixing desks and all the equipment in, uh, in my case, it was for BBC radio. So for the world service. So I would be the one sat in the cubicle with all the equipment in front twiddling faders and knobs they actually had rotary baker like knobs when I joined because world service had all this old equipment and the continuity announcers actually used to wear bow ties (laughs) 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 so which makes it sound like I was I was at the BBC in the 1940s and I wasn't this was the 1980s and and so I did that for a year or a couple of years 
and then realized that it it wasn't it wasn't for me at all and why was that i was always more interested in what was going on through the glass so the reporter the presenter the producer what they were doing the selection of material and uh, and i'd always at university i'd written for like a student magazine and i i enjoyed writing and i'd been a performer at university by being in a drama club and being in plays in fact i did a two week run of a play at the sherman theater in cardiff in billy liar wow. just before we, just before my physics degree <laughs> <laughs> so i i resigned and um, did a postgraduate journalism course at city university for for a year in in London and that was when my career completely then changed into something that suited me more which was journalism reporting broadcasting podcasting radio making short films so it was and I think there's a lesson there is that if you don't get it right first of all because Doing science as a scientist, I realised wasn't for me because I would be in a lab all afternoon doing, I think my final year was some laser experiment and I messed around so badly. I was too busy chatting to other people and having joking and going for long tea breaks. So, yeah, uh, I'm in a a profession that's better suited to my personality. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got some incredible experience Sue yeah I mean it's um I mean that's also what I really like and that why it, it suits me because I get to travel through my work I get to meet people you know I've done a zero g flight which for me was you know something of a lifetime um ambition because I'd wanted to be an astronaut when I was younger and I'd written to NASA when I was at um we're all grammar to uh asking them how did I become an astronaut and work for them and they'd replied and it sort of encouraged me to carry on studying physics which I did and it's and I've seen rocket launches in like French Guiana and Cape Canaveral I've also done travel journalism as well as science journalism so uh, at one point when I was freelancing and doing it was a bizarre mixture for about seven years I did travel travel journalism science journalism and writing comedy and I always thought that my ideal sort of commission would have been to go to the moon uh, and, and, and write a sketch about it, because then I'd get the travel, the science and the comedy in it at the same at the same time. So, yes, it's 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 a great way to, to use the physics, because as I discovered when I became a journalist, that most journalists do not have a science background which is incredibly helpful if you want to be a specialist and it means you're incredibly useful too um, because you've got something that's different and and, and particularly in in news you can't leave particularly the reporting of science you can't always leave it to a non-specialist that's not to say that non-specialists can't be science journalists because one of the best science journalists I've worked with Tim Radford who used to be the science editor of the Guardian he he was switched there from like covering films or something like that but he is just an amazing writer and was able to simplify and communicate his science in a way that was literary and beautiful to read and yet simple which is what journalism involves in terms of of writing something that is clear 
and not open to misinterpretation. Tell us, what does your current role involve on a day-to-day basis? Well, I'm going to tell you what I would be doing pre-pandemic, because obviously things are slightly different now. My week is really variable, which is one of the things I, I love about it. On some days, I might be in the office, which is about 20 minutes drive from where I live, and would be writing, writing a script, maybe working on a short film script, or writing a radio program, doing some research. We've got a a sound, small sound studio there, so I could be recording links or podcasts in there as well. Or equally, I could be out and about, and uh, I could be on location, and that could involve filming. So the short films we make for the European Space Agency about their missions, which means involving uh, explaining the science of whatever mission it is, I would go to I could go to the Netherlands which is one of Easter's sites they have a site in Madrid they have one in Darmstadt in in Germany so it could be short trips there to interview the engineers and scientists that are involved in their mission or it could be doing radio um, interviews and that can be anywhere from popping into London to do interviews or going to Glasgow or going to Houston and NASA or or whichever place it happens to be so it's so enjoyable because as you gather from the fact that I do travel writing I've always always loved traveling and I've traveled extensively from when I was very young so there isn't no such thing as a typical day but that's a sort of typical as you you could get it what are the things that you're missing most during the pandemic it's obviously now it's a little bit different because I'm doing all of that but from home predominantly So the travel has gone and the face-to-face meeting of people has gone. So like many people, I'm looking forward to getting back to human contact again because it does affect your work, actually. And also the writing, because if you only ever write, for instance, or, or record with radio remotely, then you miss all the stuff that adds colour and flavour and interest to your writing or your radio piece. If it's radio, you might miss the sounds of whatever equipment somebody might be using or just the sound of their voice or their enthusiasm and and things like that. Um, If it's print, you're missing all those descriptions again of what's going on. And people often tell you really interesting things when you're actually just having a little coffee beforehand before you do the interview. Um, So... It's and, and there could be a smell, you know, there could be if it's a, a lab, there could be a, a very sweet acetone smell or something that whereas if you're doing it just across, you know, from somebody else's study or, you know, desk or, or wherever they are off some of my interviews have been done with people in their kitchens, you, you don't get any of that or add that in because you've not been there to experience it. And that's obviously more for the sort of feature writing side of things. We want to we want to get back to, to how we were and hopefully it won't be won't be too long. But in terms of, I suppose, the technology that we've got now that has allowed us to continue to to work, but just in this bit of a, a strange way that we're all operating at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never, ever done so many Zoom <laughs> interviews in my life uh, and also use um, Zencaster as well, where you can get extremely good quality WAV files for 
for audio then to, to edit on. The technology is, has changed. It's something that I'd always advise other journalists to do if they can, which is if you can not just do one aspect, say print but, or writing or online, whatever it, it form that print might be, but also see if you can do radio as well or see if you can do TV or, or films. The writing skills are slightly different for each of them. And obviously the technical skills are, are, are different for each of them. But there is a, a and you can learn that, but there is an overlap. And it does mean that when one aspect of um, the work might go you can still do radio you can still do audio and so that's been great for us because we've that for us is second nature and we have all the equipment and we're all all set up for that already and you can s still write so we had actually all all the infrastructure already you know we've got the microphones we've got the podcast mic because we make so many different podcasts so since the pandemic we've recorded all our space boffins podcasts here i i do a, a, a podcast for the uh, queen elizabeth price for engineering called create the future and and i've recorded those podcasts here we've even recorded in our living room an hour-long it was actually for a web TV. So I was I was I was on camera. Um, my my husband, Richard Hollingham, who's also my co-host on Space Boffins, he was the presenter for that one. I've never seen him look so scared at the thought of me operating, the, you know, having to operate that equipment. Um, so we we actually were able to make do an hour long film for a web TV uh, for Asteroid Day from our living room because we've got the equipment we've got the camera we've got the microphones <laughs> we've got we've got everything so you know we were one of the lucky ones really in arts and sports journalism just had the most awful awful time economically because they've just not got any work and you know partly because we are science journalists and this is one of the biggest science stories of you know, the last hundred years, really, um, we've been involved with that by partnering with uh, BBC World Service and their OS team. And they've got a programme called BBC OS. We've spent every week since March producing a radio programme on the impact of, predominantly on the impact of the pandemic um, called BBC OS Conversations. So this week, I think, is my fifth program I think I've even made a few one-hour specials on that sometimes we've done a few on like the US elections and racism and uh, race riots and things like that but but most of those 45 have been on on coronavirus and it's been quite challenging to be honest because you're listening and particularly in the early days April May June um, well, actually, much later than that, I spent every week in tears because you're listening to ordinary people from all across the world, sometimes scientists, but the conversations tend to be among ordinary people, which I think gives it gives it so much impact in terms of their experiences of relatives and loved ones dying from uh, COVID-19, emergency responders in New York who've lost 11 colleagues, not all of them from COVID-19, um, and nearly half of them from suicide because mm. of the, how desperate it's, it's having to deal 
being the first responders all the time and dealing with this amount of, of, of trauma, of people in, in, in slums and favelas in, in India and Brazil and, and how in already deprived situations having to deal with, with a pandemic. And, and it makes you not sleep at night. And it, you know, it's like everyone. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's affecting everyone's mental health in some way. So while I've not had the economic stresses of a pandemic, because we've still got work and lots of it, for me, the the struggle is keeping sane. And so I've been doing a lot of nature walks, and I've become a bit obsessed with flowers and fungi. It's a way to to deal with it and let it all cope because you have to be emotionally engaged but also you have to be objective in order to edit that material down as well. So in terms of diversity of thought why is that so important in science? Well to me it's just common sense. If you were choosing a sports team and you had a choice of a hundred players, you wouldn't ignore half of them to select for your team. You you would be missing out on possibly the best talent there just through this random 50% of, well, you know, let's keep it predominantly male, for instance, which for centuries that science was. It and if it was ever done by women, it was it was usually often women with independent means and and sometimes of result of their husband's wealth or or status or status or job so you know like caroline herschel with her her brother william who so they already had all the you know the telescopes and instruments in, in which you could actually work on so it, it to me it's just bonkers why would you not include 50% of your mental resources. You won't get as good science out of it at the end. You will lose out on potentially huge innovations, life-saving potentially innovations, if you do not include half your population. And obviously that's specifically relating to women. And in terms of making science more inclusive, how might we do that? And this is thinking not just with regards to women, but for all minority groups. Yeah, this is this is something that is constantly discussed, and it and it's it it's it's difficult. I think part of it is I've always thought that you it's that show not tell. If you see people like you doing a job, then you realise without even clocking it at the time that it's a possibility that they're there and I can be that too and that's always been the case for women so America's first female astronaut Sally Ride said if you can't see you can't be and I think that implies to most people anybody whether it's the color of your skin or, or, or what have you if you don't see people like you in that job subconsciously you can think that it's not an area for you to be in. So I think the first thing is to encourage uh, a much more diverse workforce and and role models as well. I hear you're a big science fiction fan. How's that shaped your work? I've always been into science fiction. 
I, I hosted the People of Space Twitter feed recently, and it, it was a really enjoyable. They have different people each week with different backgrounds. And so there can be scientists, there can be, in my case, obviously a journalist, it, 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 any connection to, to space. And it made me, it was quite therapeutic, actually, because it made me go over what is it I've done that I want to share with people and that I will sort of find really interesting and the inspirations questions sort of came up and I realized you know for me it was science science fiction because I was a huge star well I am a still a huge Star Trek fan <laughs> among other things Battlestar Galactica for instance the best series the remake you know unbelievably brilliant and it was seeing women on the deck of the USS and on the ship you know of the uh, the bridge of the USS Enterprise that made me think take for granted that women would always be in sort of positions of authority. They'd be there. And whenever there was a landing party to a new planet, there was always a woman, there was always a scientist. And often the scientists were women, regardless of the fact that they were usually romantic interests for Captain Kirk. Um, I was probably too young to sort of get that. There they were, there were women. And also, you know, the woman on the, the, the bridge of the Enterprise, Lieutenant Uhura, was black. You know, that's an, and... I, I met her, I interviewed her for a radio programme um, about Star Trek, actually. Is that um, Michelle Nichols? Yes, Michelle Nichols. And I, I went to LA and, and went to her home and and um, she told me, it's quite a famous story now, about how she was ready to give up because she had so few lines, was just saying hailing frequencies, Captain, and things <laughs> like that. Um, she met Martin Luther King and Martin, and she mentioned to Martin Luther King that she was, you know, he'd said, oh, I love the programme. And she said that she was thinking of, of you know, of, of, of leaving the show. And he, said, and he said, oh, no, please, please don't. He said, you have no idea how it looks for African-Americans to see someone like them on the bridge of that ship you're there and you're doing it and uh, and in fact she later went on to um help nasa with recruiting more african-americans into the astronaut corps and the one of the women in the the first shuttle intake along was um or one of the early ones was may uh, not the first but may jemison who became the first african-american woman in space and she was inspired by michelle nichols so it has wow. Huge knock-on effect. And um, Star Trek Discovery, which is the latest Star Trek, which I've just about a week ago finished watching season three. They had their final, the finale out, and it was absolutely brilliant. When you look at the bridge of the ship in Star Trek Discovery, it's incredible. It's even more diverse. In fact, at some stage, you see entire scenes, and it was only sort of at the end of one scene that I suddenly realised, oh, my goodness, that entire scene was all women or, ah, there's no white man on the bridge of the <laughs> ship. And, and what that must be like in the same way that I felt it seeing a woman, in the same way that African-American men and women seeing, you know, women seeing a woman in Star Trek 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, seeing now, seeing on, the, on, on Discovery, you've got... Um, you know, so many different minority groups represented in that cast and an openly gay couple. Um, it, it's just, it's just, and one of the characters is, is trans, one of the new characters. It, it is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. So yeah, Sally Ride um, got it right. If you can't, can't see, you can't be. 
But having said that, you know, a lot of scientific organisations have spent an awful lot of money in, in order to try and do these things. And, they've, and some of them have not made much progress at all. Why is education so critical? I mean, I think education is so important because if you've not done the right subjects before the age of 18, then that makes that immediately a really tough ask and a quite a struggle to then say at the age of 25, do you know what? I wish I'd have done science. I really like it. So it's also entwined with better teaching, particularly of science. I think that's absolutely key. A few years ago, I did a, a couple of weeks at two local schools because I wanted to, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll switch careers and become a teacher. And because I saw what an amazing job um, the teachers were doing and and I just think I haven't got the energy to do what teachers do now I said well I'd love they said oh you'd have to teach physics and another subject like physics and chemistry and physics and biology well I didn't do biology a level I was like oh well, I don't want to teach biology you know I I, I don't I, I'd rather teach I'd, physics I said the, the subject I'd feel most comfortable teaching is maths because obviously physics and maths is a huge, huge overlap. And, um, and I love maths. But then you couldn't teach physics and maths together, which is crazy. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are, there are a lot of issues. But if you are having, and I saw this firsthand, if you are having a physics lesson taught by a biology graduate, yes, they, they teach you the right things, don't get me wrong, but there's something different. There's nothing added to it because it's not their subject so that and it shows and you can tell because it just lacks that spark when you see a class taught by someone who does have a physics background it really makes a difference I was absolutely shocked and then it all made sense to me um, why there was (laughs) there were so few physics uh, people taking physics because I also came across some shocking physics teachers as well I mean just because they were unable to anybody's question that went beyond what was on this is what I'm teaching in this lesson they couldn't explain it well or answer it well what advice would you give to girls and also women who might be interested in science but they just don't know where to where to start if some things I'm having trouble making a decision do I do this or do I want to do that should I do that I always will make a list and I will make a list of what do I like about this and what don't I like about that and so I would be honest about myself and make a list what do you enjoy what jobs do you have you seen and that you really enjoy and and say you have to be brutally honest with with your with yourself and then explore that further because it's true there are jobs out there that you don't know about and I was in the same way but what I did when I was at university was I didn't know what to do. So I just wrote to the BBC and said, can you please tell me what sort of jobs you have available, please? And do you, what training courses you have? And they sent back massive envelope full of one page descriptions, each with a different color on the top. And it had all these schemes that they ran, which, you know, totally new to me and it was like news production trainee this trainee this you know that and one of them was studio manager and that's how I found out about it I didn't didn't know anything about it. and so you have to do that and like you it was before 
it was before the um, internet and email and things and before Google. So you had to literally just write it, handwrite it, no typewriters and computer, and just send it in a stamp and get it. But you, so it's so much easier now. You can just go and look at that company. You can find an email contact thing and just inquire and say, and look on their websites because often these schemes and things. Uh, and so you've got to do the work. And actually, particularly within journalism, there's the first clue. If you give up then, then journalism's probably not for you because you have to be a self-starter. You have to persist. You have to find out things. It's a bit like being a detective. You can't give up. <laughs> You've got to think, okay, I didn't get anywhere there. Where, what, how can I try again? What's another way of, of getting in touch with this person or finding out more? I remember that it used to be a lot about careers and jobs. You had to physically take yourself somewhere to speak to somebody about things a lot as well um so you know there'd be a careers fair or which are you know I think we all miss things like that yeah I never went to a careers fair actually and the only careers officer I ever went to was at school and they just said to me what do you like they said what do you want to be and I said an astronaut and and I can imagine looking back now and imagine just looking their eyebrows going thinking oh my god and they said well what do you like and I said science physics and he said okay, you should be either a teacher or an accountant. <laughs> so it was, very, it was very limited. And I was quite shocked as well when um, a guy I knew at university, lovely guy, his first job from university was as a careers officer. And I was shocked. I was thinking, but you've not even had a bloody career. How can you be a careers officer if you've not had a career? And, and the thing is, that's why I feel you have to sort of find it yourself, is that careers officers they just can't know every single job and every area. There are just too many of them. They'll, you know, they'll know, they'll have a lot of useful information, but not always necessarily for the career that might be out there for you. So you have to either contact people that you know, friends of friends or family friends. And if you don't have that, I didn't have any friends in the media. And I I get a bit annoyed when I read about that, when they say, oh, journalists, you have to know someone, you have to know someone. Because most of the journalists I know from, I think we didn't, we didn't know anybody. We, we really didn't. And I know it does happen. Um, and you hear that, oh, you know, Jonty Fonty Blonty has, has been given an internship because uh, Crispin Watsit is daddy is you know managing director of something and yes it does happen you can do it It, so yes do whatever you can and if there's somebody doing the job that you like or you think you might like again try and contact them and 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 get some advice and I'm a great believer in courses as well I mean I will still go on courses to learn things that I want whether it's related to journalism or or related to an interest of mine is 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 to do that is is to really just explore every avenue you can and and try and get those you know a week or a day or a see what it's like firsthand I think you've got to be really careful I've really these uh, it's quite shocking the way some companies take advantage of young people and give you know you hear that they're they're doing unpaid internships and they've been there three months well that's ludicrous you know how long is the right length of time? You only need a week or a day or a couple of days at a place to see whether it's for you and to get a good idea of, of the job or, or what have you. And that's, I think that's, that's always good, good experience. Um, I mean, and some people do go on, particularly within radio, local radio stations. You can say, look, can I 
can I help out at the weekend or help out on a day, you know, a day and, and just to see whether it's something that you do like and enjoy. Because while you're there, you can always have your mind changed like I did. You know, you see a job and you get it like studio manager and then realise there are other jobs that I'd never heard of, like radio producer, that you do like. And then you go towards that and then you work as a radio producer and you think, actually, I'd rather... I quite like reporting, which is how I ended up reporting and then presenting and being a correspondent and doing all that stuff. It it all led in little little stages. So, and it was only through seeing other people do those jobs that I found out a bit more about them. So finally, what is coming up for you? What are you excited about? Well, I still have my weekly OS Conversations programme, which I feel honoured to be doing this because I think it's so important in terms of how many millions of people it goes to and how people are sharing what's happening to them under unprecedented times. It's an amazing programme to work on. It's it's an absolutely amazing programme and the material I get to edit is superb. I think in terms of what I'm looking forward to, I've got a four-part series coming up, which I'm presenting rather than producing on BBC World Service on um, the communication of science that will be coming up uh, over the summer. And I'm really looking forward to producing Angela Saini, who's the writer of Superior and Inferior, because I've known Angela for a long time. She's a brilliant science writer and and broadcaster. And... uh, but we've never worked together. And uh, whenever we bumped into each other at science things, we, we keep saying, oh, and we've tried several projects over the last few years and they've never quite um, come through. So, yeah, I'm very, very pleased to be working with with Angela Saini. But I am looking forward to when this is all returned to normal, going on my little trips, uh, meeting some of the amazing scientists at the European Space Agency again. That will be a joy, but I expect many people are looking forward to a bout of normality ahead. Hello, my name is Inish Santush. I am the Associate Editor of Womanology, and I am back to tell you all about our new issue, Women in Science. The stories include Dr. Natalie Petarelli and Professor Sarian Sumner, co-founders of Soapbox Science, which is celebrating its first decade this year, tell us all about the internationalization of Soapbox Science and the impact of COVID-19 on its events. Sarah Fowell, a research scientist in autonomous sensor development at the National Oceanography Center in Southampton, shares how chemistry can be used to save coral reefs. Sarah tells us all about her passion for the ocean, how she got to her current role, and how being part of a diverse team is her favorite part of her job. Also, you can read about Dr. Marguerite Evans-Galea, the Executive Director of the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM at the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. Marguerite tells us about IMNIS, their mentoring program which connects PhD students and early career researchers with influential industry leaders. 
Professor Nala Mansour, specialist in microbial molecular biology at Egypt's National Research Center, shares details of her research project supported by the Newton Mosharafa Fund. Her project, in partnership with the University of Nottingham, finds a way to fight foodborne diseases and, with the help of the funding, has already been recognized internationally. Professor Hajar Mozanif is an associate professor and coordinator of the master's program in data science at Kadi Hayad University, Morocco. Hajar specializes in artificial intelligence and has developed the first humanoid Moroccan robot as part of a United Nations initiative to support women and fight all forms of discrimination against them. She also talks about the problem of female representation in PhDs. Kirsty Brummel, founder of Trademark Tonic, tells us why trademarks and patents are so important. She also shares her experience of setting up a business during the COVID-19 pandemic. Finally, Joe Foster, the Institution of Engineering and Technology's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Manager, tells us all about why the IET is participating in the British Science Council's Diversity and Inclusion Progression Framework 2.0. She also discusses the celebrations for the IET's 150th anniversary. Do check out our website www.womanfology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all for me. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe. Your feedback is really important to us. So please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now. But join us in the next episode where we'll be hearing about women working in the energy sector. For now, take care and stay safe.